pray together. Father, we ask that you would now make us those who seek the city that is to come. For Christ's sake, amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we will be looking at verses 8 through 22. And as you turn there, uh, I want to remind you briefly... The big idea, I think, that the author of Hebrews is trying to get across to his audience. You remember that we've talked about the way that, that this audience has evidently suffered. In fact, if you're in Hebrews 11, you might be able to see on the page or the previous page, verse 34, uh, which speaks of how there were some in prison that they, uh, they had compassion on, and this resulted in their own property being plundered. And then over in chapter 13... He's going to speak of how uh, the people of Jesus should go out to him bearing the reproach he endured in Hebrews 13, 13. And so this is an audience that the author is speaking to who has suffered in the past for the gospel and he expects them to suffer in the future for the gospel. And it seems that he's trying to keep them from going back to Judaism by which they could avoid all future suffering. If they were to revert to being identified with the Jews, they could avoid future suffering because the Romans didn't persecute the Jews. At this point in history, um, the Romans were okay with the Jews. They understood Judaism. They understood that the Jews only worshiped their one God. And so the Romans did not per persecute the Jews when the Jews refused to worship the Roman gods. But the Christians because they were not identified with the Jews, they were expected to, to uh, worship the Roman gods, and when they refused to do so, the Romans persecuted them. So the message of the author of Hebrews is, I know it's bad, I know it's been bad, I know it's going to be bad, but don't go back to Judaism. And I think we can easily translate that big idea into our context and, and just put it like this, don't go back to the worldly way of life out of which the Lord called you. Don't go back to the worldly way of life out of which the Lord called you when he summoned you to follow Jesus. And if we ask, what does this look like? I think what the author is giving us here in Hebrews 11, 8 through 22, are some Old Testament examples of what it looks like not to go back to the worldly way of life out of which you were called. So I've, I've suggested that this section of Hebrews starts at Hebrews 10.19 and continues through Hebrews 12.25. And you remember when we looked at 10.19 through 25 that there are really three things that the author urges his audience to do there. In verse 22, he wants them to draw near to the Lord in the heavenly holy of holies seated, seated on his throne in verse 23 of chapter 10, hold fast the confession of our faith. And then in verse 24, consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. And then if you look over at chapter 12, he says in verse 
22, you have come to Mount Zion. And I think the idea is the Lord is enthroned in the heavenly Mount Zion. And he's at the start saying, let's draw near to the Lord. And then at the end of this section, he's saying, you've come to Mount Zion. And so again, I think we can ask in this passage, uh, Hebrews 11, 8 through 22, what does it look like for someone to draw near, hold fast, and then consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds? And I think the, the author is going to answer, it looks like Abraham. That's what it looks like. And then if we were to ask, well, what does it mean to come to Mount Zion even though we can't see it? I think the author is essentially saying, 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You don't see Mount Zion, but these people I'm telling you about from the Old Testament, they lived for Mount Zion, the city of God, the new Jerusalem. And then if we were to say, can you tell me, Mr. Author of Hebrews, more about this better possession? If you look at chapter 10, verse 34, uh, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession. If we were to say, can you tell me more about this better possession that enables rejoicing even if they plunder our property? I think the author is essentially saying, let me tell you more about that. Let me tell you more about that by telling you about Abraham. So let's look together at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, where the author writes, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And, and so what he's saying, remember 11.1, 1, faith is, is the assurance of things hoped for. So Abraham was told... Go to the land that I will show you. And he was told, I'm going to give you a great name, and I'm going to make you a great nation, and you will be a blessing. That's what he was told. And believing those things, the assurance of those things hoped for, by faith in those promises, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And then the second part of 11.1 Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's like the author is saying, Abraham was convinced, he had a conviction that God would indeed give him these things that he could not see. And because of that, he went, he obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an, as an inheritance. And then the examples that the author gave in verses 4 through 7. Examples of Abel and Enoch and Noah. These are all guys who recognized what the world offers me is not as good as what I stand to gain if I live for the Lord. In other words, what the Lord has promised me is better than what the Lord offers me. That's what we see in the lives of Abel and Enoch and Noah. And now the author is saying, this is what it looks like in Abraham's life. And this is the answer to that question. What does it look like to know that we have a better possession and an abiding one? And so if they take away our property, we rejoice because, because we believe that God will make good on the promises. So verse 8, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing 
where he was going. You remember the Lord said, uh, go to the land that I will show you. He didn't even specify where Abraham was to go. But because Abraham knew God, and because Abraham believed the promises, he didn't need to be told where he was going. He trusted the Lord, and he went. And, and it's really interesting what the author accomplishes by, by giving Abraham as this example. You, if you think about what he's trying to, to communicate to his audience and what he's saying about Abraham, I think it sets up a parallel that goes like this. To those ancient Jewish, Jewish people who have now become Christians, I think he's saying something like, you have come out of the Jewish synagogue to live for the Lord Jesus in the same way that Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldees to live for God. And look at the parallel that that sets up. If, if I'm right about that, that suggests that going back to the synagogue, going back to Judaism, is tantamount to Abraham going back to Ur of the Chaldees, which essentially is like going back to Babylon. And so the author is saying, don't go back to Babylon. And ironically here, Babylon is Judaism. And, and, and the reason that Judaism is now Babylon is because they've rejected their king. They've rejected Jesus, the Messiah. And by doing that, they have dishonored Abraham, whose seed the Lord Jesus is, and they have put themselves under God's curse, and they've identified themselves with the seed of the serpent. So it's like the author is saying, would Abraham go back to Ur of the Chaldees and live among the seed of the serpent? No, he wouldn't do that. And neither should you. Now, the author is going to open and close in this unit, verses 8 through 22, in similar ways. So I would invite you to drop your eyes down to verse 22, where at the end of this section, he says, by faith, Joseph at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What the author is doing here is he's saying, Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldeans and Joseph was looking forward to the coming out of Egypt. And, and so it's, it's almost like, you know, in, in the book of Revelation, the city of Jerusalem is identified with Babylon and Egypt. And it's almost as though the author is doing that here. And he's saying, in the same way that Joseph was looking to, to the exodus from Egypt, so also you're looking to the Lord's final deliverance. And this again identifies Judaism, out of which these people have come, not only with Egypt, but also in Abraham's case with, with Babylon. And so also we should think of the wicked world out of which we were called. We should conceptualize the, the, the place from which the Lord delivered us when he summoned us to follow Christ in terms of Babylon and Egypt. We've been delivered, symbolically speaking, from the wicked world system. Now, contemplate for a moment what Abraham left and what Joseph was looking forward to leaving. Okay, so in Abraham's case, the Lord commanded him Leave your country and your kindred and your father's house. And that's everything that makes it comfortable to live someplace. You know the land, you know the language, your country, your kindred, all the people that are going to side with you if there's a conflict, all the people that are going to protect you, all the people that are going to be on your side, and your father's house. Everything entailed in your inheritance and, and your heritage, your legacy, 
Abraham is summoned to leave all of that. It's as though the Lord is saying, you can't get comfortable in the world. You can't live for this world when he, come, when he summons him to go to the land that he will show him. And then think about Joseph. Uh, the author of Hebrews doesn't say about Joseph what he says about Moses, but it's similar. I mean, Joseph is Lord of Egypt, and he says about Moses, as was just read um, in verse 25, that Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, and he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Joseph is choosing, don't leave me in one of these lavish pyramids. Don't leave me with all the wealth that the, the great people of Egypt are buried with. That's not what I live for. Joseph is saying, I want to be in the land of promise. My, I want my bones in the land of promise. And the rationale, I think, for this is a resurrection hope. Why would Joseph want his bones buried in the land of promise if it were not the fact that the hope he has goes beyond the grave. So I, I think the rationale for Joseph and others, Jacob is included in this, being concerned, Abraham and Sarah are included in this, being concerned to be buried in the land of promise, it's like they're saying, we believe God is going to keep the promise. And we believe God is going to keep the promise even though we bodily die. We believe that God's going to raise the dead and make good on the promises. So I think in the case of Abraham, who went out from Ur, and in the case of Joseph, who's looking to the Exodus, the author is saying, you're like them. You people who have followed Jesus are like Abraham and Joseph. And then there's a kind of subtle, Abraham wouldn't go back. And Joseph doesn't want to stay in a pyramid, so you don't go back. Don't, don't. There's nothing back there for you. There's nothing for you back in the worldly way of life out of which the Lord called you. And, and I would invite you to reflect. I, I don't know the answer to this question, but I would invite you to reflect on this question. What does being a Christian call you to go out from? What does being a Christian summon you out of maybe things that you don't want to let go of maybe passing fleeting pleasures of sin that you don't want to rid yourself of maybe uh, worldly perspectives on your status or your performance that you'd like to hang on to being a christian summons you to a new source of pleasure a new standard of evaluation and a new source of your identity We don't want a home in this world. We don't want sinful pleasure. We don't want a worldly identity. Next, in verses 9 through 11, the author is going to elaborate on this. And I think what he's going to tell us here is that the, the promise that God made to Abraham pertains to the new heavens and new earth and the resurrection of the seed of the woman. So look with me at verse 9. The author writes, by faith, he, this is Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. So he left his country and his kindred, and he went to a foreign land. He went to a place where he didn't know the customs. He wouldn't have known the languages on first arrival. He, he wouldn't have known uh, anyone there. He went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents. And I think the author is 
drawing attention to the way that, that likely Abraham had a physical structure, like a house that he lived in back in Babylon. And now he's a, a tent-dwelling nomad, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. What would motivate someone to do this? Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. Now, I think, you know, earlier I asked the question, uh, can you tell us more about this better possession from chapter 10, verse 34? So here's the first little indication of the better possession in verse 10. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations. And then listen to the next phrase, whose designer and builder is God. We've seen another book, or, or, sorry, not another book. We've seen another structure in the book of Hebrews that was set up by God, not man. Do you remember what it was? The, the description of it was back in chapter 8 when we read in verse 2 that the Lord Jesus is a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So in the same way that this heavenly temple in which the Lord currently sits enthroned, that was set up by God, not man, so also this city that has foundations has God for its architect and builder. And I think that this way of thinking is what gives rise to the way that in the, in the, in the book of Revelation, when the new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven, it is a perfect cube. And, and that, in biblical symbolism, recalls the Holy of Holies. That new Jerusalem is the new and final cosmic temple. It's the dwelling place of God. So in the same way that God built the earth in the beginning, the, the original creation, and he built the heavenly temple in which he's now enthroned, he's built the new Jerusalem. And in verse 10, the author of Hebrews, I think, is saying, that's what Abraham is looking forward to. So this suggests that Abraham discerned that when God said to him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, God is announcing, Abraham, this is, the, this is the reclamation project. Adam surrendered dominion to the serpent over which he was to exercise dominion. When God gave Adam dominion over the beast, he surrendered that dominion to the, to the serpent. The serpent is now, as the, the apostle Paul says, the prince of the power of the air, but we're taking it back. And the first part of the reclamation project is you going to this land that points to the new creation. So Abraham is able to, to go, not, not knowing where he's going in verse 8, and to go not having a permanent dwelling place in verse 9, living in tents because of the promise, because he's looking forward to the city that has foundations. You know, we have... We have members of Kenwood that have gone to unpleasant places. They've gone to places, uh, the Diranamais, where it is really uncomfortably hot. And they can't get fresh fruit. And th th there are all kinds of awful realities about living not only in a very uncomfortable place, but in a wicked culture. A culture where they don't honor God, they have no, they have no Christian heritage, and, and there's... It's shot through with idolatry, and that just creates all kinds of wretchedness that they have to endure. And what we, what we should pray for them is that they would do this looking forward to the city that has foundations. We should pray that this hope would sustain them where they are. 
We have other members of Kenwood that have left this little taste of the Garden of Eden, Kenwood Baptist Church, and they've gone to really unpleasant ecclesiastical situations. Real, churches full of nasty people. And, and those, those nasty people who haven't been taught the Bible, who maybe don't believe in Jesus, are acting like seed of the serpent. And we should pray that our brothers who have gone to try to pastor in these places would look to the city that has foundations and that this would sustain them because we don't live for the present. We live for that future day. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself, now the ESV renders this, received power to conceive. Now what they've done is they have interpreted the, the literal phrase here, power to conceive. But I, I want you to hear the literal phrase because I think it's so significant in biblical theological terms. Literally, the text says, Sarah herself received power for the foundation of the seed. That's what Sarah received. She received power for the foundation of the seed. Now, you may think, well, that doesn't sound very significant. What the author is getting at is the way that Isaac is the beginning of the seed born out of death. Did you notice our call to worship this morning, Isaiah 51, 1 and 2? Isaiah says, look to the rock that bore you. Rocks are dead. I think Isaiah is symbolically speaking of Abraham as a dead rock out of which the people came to life. And then he says, look from the quarry out of which you were dug. It's almost like they're being dug out of the grave. And then he says, you know, he says, look to Abraham and Sarah. It's, all the, it's almost as though Isaiah is saying, Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead. And lo and behold, look at verse 12 of Hebrews 11. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead. So the author of Hebrews is really speaking about Abraham and Sarah the same way that Isaiah spoke about Abraham and Sarah, which is the same way that Moses spoke about Sarah in particular when he says in Genesis eleven thirty one, now Sarah was barren. That means that her womb is dead. Her body is dead. Dead to the life-giving power of having children. So when the author says here in verse 11, by faith Sarah herself received power for the foundation of the seed, I mean, it's almost like a grain of wheat is falling into the ground and dying and then giving forth much fruit. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. This is the same thing going on with Abraham. Now, notice the connection here between the land, the land of promise, which I'm suggesting Abraham understands at some level, this is talking about the new creation, and the seed, the seed of promise, which is pointing forward, I think, Abraham understands at some level that the seed of the woman is going to bring about the new creation. So I think at one level it points to the Lord Jesus. And then at another level it's going to point to all those who are seed of Abraham. That is all believers. Okay, so you can see the inheritance, the land in verse 8. He was to receive it as inheritance. And then he lived there as in a foreign land in verse 9. And the reason Abraham can do this is the same reason Sarah could do it. The reason Abraham could do it in verse 10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. That is, he was believing the promises. 
The reason Sarah could do it, Sarah having to do with the, the seed, she received power for the foundation of the seed, verse 11, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And this confronts us with a question, doesn't it? Do we consider him faithful? Do we, are we convinced enough that the one who promised is faithful, that when they take our stuff, our response is going to be, praise the Lord that I get to suffer for Jesus the way the audience of the author to, Hebrew, to the Hebrews suffered for Jesus. That when they reproach us for our, in their, in their worldview, our harmful ways of thinking about things. I mean, you know, it's, it's harmful to suggest that you shouldn't mutilate someone by chopping off healthy organs because of something going on in their brains. I'm talking about you know, sexual reassignment surgery. It's harmful to say that you shouldn't mutilate someone's body in that way. We're the harmful ones. I'm, I'm being ironic here. But they're going to reproach us for being harmful, for being bigoted, for not getting on. Okay, Do, are we convinced enough of the one who has promised that we're willing to say, I will gladly bear the reproach of Christ? And, and are we convinced enough that if you're in a job interview and they say, are you on board with gay marriage? Are you on board with this or that emphasis in the culture? Are we con convinced enough to say, I will always identify with the Lord Jesus and the teaching of the scriptures. And I will always say that what he says is right and what he says is wrong. And really, I think probably more pressing for many of us, are we convinced enough that the joys of the city that has foundations, that the, the, the trustworthiness of the one of whom the scriptures say, he withholds no good things. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Are we convinced enough to say no to whatever tempts us? No, I will not indulge that passing pleasure of sin. It just comes down to that. Are we looking to the city that has foundations, and are we considering him faithful who has promised? So there in verses 9 through 11... The promise pertains to the new heaven and new earth and to the resurrection of the seed of the woman. Now, I think there's a corresponding unit that runs down in verses 17 through 21. And I think, I think you'll see, as soon as we look at this, the similarities here. So I would invite you to drop your eyes down and look with me at verses 17 through 21. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac, um, he of the foundation of the seed, you know, uh, back in Sarah, received power to conceive, verse 11. Now, verse 17, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your seed be named. And then verse 19 he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Okay, so the author is telling us that when Abraham took Isaac up the mountain, he did that because he considered, there in verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So if we were able to interrogate Isaac, Abraham, sorry, on his way up the mountain, Abraham, what are you doing? I'm doing what God told me to do. What is that going to entail? I'm going to put my son to death. Isn't your son 
The child of promise? Yes, he is. How's God going to keep the promise? God's going to raise him from the dead. And then I think if we were to say, what reason do you have for thinking that God is going to raise Isaac from the dead? I think Abraham would say, well, God already brought life out of Sarah's dead womb. So there's a parallel between Sarah's dead, barren womb bringing forth Isaac and then Abraham offering Isaac up, believing God is going to raise him from the dead to keep the promise. And the author says, figuratively speaking, that, you know, the, the, we could translate that figuratively speaking, something like um, parabolically, in a parable. And a parable is, is where you, you, know, you set the story next to the reality to bring out things about the reality that you're going to make clear in the story. So it's as though Isaac was raised from the dead when the ram was provided in his place. And here again, I think there's a, a twofold correspondence between what happens with the Lord Jesus, the seed of promise, who was, Mary was not barren like Sarah, but she did not know her husband. He was born of a virgin. So God brought life where there was no way for life to come in the birth of the Lord Jesus. And then Jesus was offered up and he was slain. He was killed and God raised him from the dead. And then similarly also, all the descendants of Abraham. It's as though God has caused life from the dead to happen in us when we're born again. So there's all this resurrection going on in this passage. If you are a believer, if you are a true believer, your faith is resurrection faith. Your faith is life from the dead faith. If you're a true believer, your faith is life from the dead faith. If God can do life from the death, life from the dead, if he can do, as Paul says in Romans 4, where Paul says, he calls into being things that do not exist, nothing is impossible for him. If, if, if he can give you life out of death faith, resurrection faith, there's nothing that he can't do. Now, look again at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. I think the author wants to bring out the way that Abraham is willing to lose anything in obedience to the Lord. Abraham is trusting the Lord no matter what. And, and this, this is really confrontational for us, isn't it? I think, again, it asks us to consider, is our confidence in God such that we will obey him whatever he calls us to do? That's the kind of faith we need to have. We need to be ready to obey the Lord whatever he calls us to do. And we want to have faith that God has raised the seed from the dead, like he did with Isaac at his birth and when Abraham offered him up, and that resurrection faith points to our resurrection and our enjoyment of that city that has foundations. Now, I think the, the central unit of this text is in verses 12 through 16, and, and it's interesting how uh, before and after this unit, you have all these by-faith statements. So, verse 8, by-faith, verse 9, by-faith, verse 11, by-faith, 
And then if you drop your eyes down to verse 17, by faith. And then we're going to get in verse 20, by faith. Verse 21, by faith. Verse 22, by faith. So let me pick up, I stopped at verse 19. Let me pick up briefly verses 20 and 21 before we look at the central section in verses 12 through 16. Verse 20, by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And, and again, I, I think the author is saying um, Isaac is looking to the future. And he's blessing Jacob and Esau. He's uh, announcing these blessings over his sons, looking to the future resurrection. Verse 21, by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So again, uh, Jacob is looking to the future, looking to the way that God is going to keep his promises. And the author really explains what's going on for all these people in verses 12 through 16. So let's look back now at verse 12, where the author writes, Therefore from one man, this is Abraham, and him as good as dead. You know, literally the text says, being dead of Abraham. You know, they, 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 they slip in this as good as, but that's not actually in the Greek text. The author is saying Abraham was dead. And I think the translators don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. And they, 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 they want to help you understand, oh, he's, he's really just talking about Abraham's reproductive capacity, that he was as good as dead in that regard. Physically, he was still alive. But the author says, you know, Abraham and him being dead. Uh, and then he, then he goes on, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Which you remember Genesis 15. Go outside, Abraham says to the Lord. This man, Eliezer of Damascus, is going to be my heir. And the Lord says, go outside. Look at those stars. Count them if you can number them. And then he says, so shall your offspring be. As numerous as the stars of heaven. Innumerable. And then on other occasions, he promises him that he will have um, as many descendants as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Verse 13, these all died in faith. Now, I think by these all, the author means Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and all the rest. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. So, in other words, they're, they're living for the new heavens and new earth. They're living for the resurrection from the dead, and they haven't received those things when their bodies physically expire. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles, in the earth. In, in other words, verse 10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. In other words, 1034, since you yourselves know that you have a better possession and an abiding one. That's what it looks like to see these things and greet them from afar. And then when the author says, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiled, uh, the word, the, what's rendered having acknowledged there is another form of the word for confession in 1023. Let us hold fast our confession. Well, it's like they made the good confession. They made the confession that they don't live for this world. So again, Abraham didn't go back to Ur of the Chaldees. Joseph didn't make a home down in Egypt. Rather, they confessed 
We're strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, I would invite you to look back at verse 12, and let me just offer you a a sort of applicationary question from verse 12. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead. What power is at work in the birth of Isaac? We might say, what potency? Is it Abraham's potency? No, Abraham is impotent. So it is not Abraham's power that is at work in the birth of Isaac. What power is at work in our walk of faith? Are we doing this on our own effort? Are we, are we trying really hard to keep believing? Or are we impotent for that? I think we're impotent for that. And, and, and the Lord Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We need the, the life-giving word of God spoken into us to make us alive. We need that for our initial conversion. We need that, we need that for our ongoing sanctification. And we need that for everything that we try to do as we seek the kingdom. We can't be doing this on our own power, on our own cleverness. It can't rest on that. And then uh, from verse 13, uh, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. You know why I think he's telling his audience this? I think he's telling his audience this because they're, they're tempted to go back to Judaism so that they can have peace and safety, freedom from persecution. And he's saying, look, the Old Testament faithful, they died in faith not having those things. So I would just ask, do you think verse 13 points to an earthly realization of the kingdom of God prior to the return of Christ? I don't know about you, but I think the answer to that question is obviously no. But there are people out there running around today, they're running around, uh, saying, <laughs> saying that we are going to bring in the kingdom. And I think that the Bible is just testifying against them. Now, um, look at verse 14. I think verse 14 is the, the heart, the center of the whole passage. For people who speak thus, how do they speak? Well, consider Abraham. More more important to me than my country, my kindred, my father's house. More important to me than the ongoing life of my beloved son. More important to me than anything that I have is God and living for him and doing whatever he calls me to do. Consider Sarah. More important to me than what makes sense to me and, you know, Babies being born from barren women obviously didn't make sense to Sarah. She laughed when God said she was going to have a child. More important than what makes sense to me, more significant than than my safety or my, my peace in this world is God and what he has promised. And we could go on this way. Verse 14, people who speak thus, people who speak like this, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Now, I think the homeland... That, that the author is talking about is the new and better Garden of Eden. The problem that we're all dealing with is that Adam sinned and got us driven out of the presence of God. We, we, we all were born, we're, we're made for Eden, we're born for Eden in a sense, and, and none of us gets to live in Eden. And we're all seeking a homeland. The question is, where are you going to find the homeland that you're seeking? Are you going to seek the new and better Eden as your true homeland, or are you going to try to make pretend, make believe, like Louisville 
is the new and better Garden of Eden. Or like Babylon or Egypt. Luke and I were recently in Egypt. You can talk to him. He doesn't think Egypt is anything like the Garden of Eden. You don't, you don't want a substitute. You don't want a cheap, worldly, satanic imitation of the true thing. You want the real homeland. People who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, Abraham could have gone back, and he didn't. Why? Verse 16, as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So, better possession, 1034, city that has foundations, 1110, homeland, 1114, and now in 1116, a better country that is a heavenly one, and I think that John resolves this for us when he, when he describes the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, and, and heaven and earth are unified, brought together at last as the new Jerusalem is that the, the holy of holies of the new cosmic temple. God has prepared for them a city there at the end of 1116. Notice how in 1116 he says, as it is they desire a better country. I just want to run through the author of Hebrews' use of this term better throughout the, the letter. It's not always translated better, but these are all instances of the term that he uses here. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says that the Lord Jesus has inherited a name as much better than that of the angels as, as the name he has inherited is better than theirs. In, in 6.9, this is interesting, I think, as he's talking uh, to his audience and warning them of what will happen if they leave the faith, he says, but we are persuaded of better things concerning you. I think he means you're going to enjoy all this stuff, all this better stuff that I'm talking about. In 7.7, he says that the lesser, and remarkably, that's Abraham, is blessed by the better, and that's Melchizedek. 7.19, he says that the Lord Jesus has introduced a better hope. 7.22, a better covenant. 8.6, again, a better covenant enacted on better promises. 9.23, it was brought about with better sacrifices. And then 10.34, a better possession. 11.16, a better country. 11.35, if you want to drop your eyes down there, he speaks of how these people who were faithful in the Old Testament were looking forward to a better resurrection. And then in 1140, he says uh, that 1139, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. And I think what he's saying is God wants us to be included in the better that he has prepared. And then in 1224, um, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And in application of, of these, these verses, I would just ask you to practice, practice. If, if this is difficult for us, and it's going to be difficult for all of us, when something is difficult, we need to practice, okay? So uh, what we want to do is we want to discipline ourselves in the skill of setting side by side the better hope, the better kingdom, the, the, everything that is better, the better country to what it is that is saying 
you can have this now. You can, you can pursue this now. And, and if we set these two things side by side, there will be no comparison. And, and it's in practicing this, disciplining ourselves, cultivating the ability to do it by hiding the word in our hearts and then by, by again, going over it and over it. You know, if, if, if you have a, a particular, um, let's say, a, a, a piece of footwork that you have to, you have to execute in a dance or in a, in a sport or something, you take your feet through it slowly you make it where you know where your foot needs to go, how you need to shift your weight, how you need to um, engage which muscles, and then you get faster and faster at it. And this is what we need to practice with setting side by side the things that tempt us with what we stand to gain as we pursue faithfulness. We want to long for the better country, and we need to practice doing it. The author is essentially saying here, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and in the next section, Moses, they all lived for the better possession, the city that has foundations, the homeland, the better heavenly country, the city of Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, and you should too. Let's pray. Lord, give us grace. Cause the word to be to our souls like your word of command. Let there be light. Make it happen, we pray. Make us those who speak thus and demonstrate that we are seeking a homeland. We ask that you do this for the glory of your great name for our deep satisfaction in all the good things that you lavishly bestow on those who fear you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.